Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome, everyone, and thanks again for downloading another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is Chris Harvey, who served in the HAC as a reservist from 1994 to 2000. It's great to have on the podcast. I normally start off with our guest backstory, so over to you. Uh, thanks, Ken. Hi, folk. Um, yeah, before I start, I'd, uh, I'd like to, to give a huge amount of thanks to actually all of those who've put time into these podcasts. You know, they've really been interesting, um, but also to those who have served in actually all the armed forces and hearing in particular the guys who served in Operation Banner in Northern Ireland, you know, the two Falklands podcasts, uh, Iraq and Afghan, and the many other stories you know, I found totally fascinating. Um, but also thanks to both of you uh, for putting this, you know, in your time to bring this together. Uh, I've got to say I was pretty much speechless to hear what our teams went through both then and actually now, uh, but also what their families who support them do what they have to do. What was also interesting uh, was the respect across regiments. And I'm not sure I ever really realised actually how bad it was for people, you know, the, the, the guys in the Falklands. I was 11 at the time and how stressful it must have been and how the blokes just got on with it, no matter what their regiment was. But hearing their accounts really actually brought it home to me. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be many listeners who hearing Neil talk through his PTSD journey, uh, for example, will give them some comfort that you know, they are not alone and it's okay to feel, react uh, the way they do. And I definitely sat nodding when he mentioned certain triggers. And I know you guys will get that out of me later. So HAC, I joined in around 1994 for around six years. And it's great to hear Steve's podcast and the evolutions it's been through, through to its current role. Um, I have to say, I'm really glad to still see one squadron at the cutting edge. But why did I join the HAC? Um, I suppose it's like anything, I fell into it. Um, at the time, I had a non-military job. I was a broker in the Lloyd's insurance market. And I'd recently changed jobs and had a conversation with the guy, Matt. Uh, it must have been 93, 94. And he suggested we go and 
see the HAC, Honourable Artillery Company. I had an open evening and he said there was free booze too. So it was a definite winner. I'd left school at 16 and I always wondered about a career in either the emergency services or armed forces. And it was actually a friend of my dad's who was a Met Police Chief Inspector who said I should actually go and experience sort of normal life and a normal job before actually making any decision. My own father, um, unlike a number of the other guys on the podcast, hadn't been in the military at all. Though my grandfather was an air sea rescue guy in, in World War II out of Harwich on the Essex coast. He'd also taken three little ships over to Dunkirk. Um, and as, as a coxswain, he was actually presented with a medal by the King of Belgium, King Albert. His citation noted that he'd saved over a thousand troops from the beaches, um, which is pretty amazing for a, a quiet little cockle fishing guy from Leon C. And Did you ever talk much about it, Chris? A- absolutely not at all, Ferg. We knew he went to Dunkirk. Actually, think about it, he had a, a clock he stole off one of the boats uh, on his mantelpiece. But as was the way back then, uh, they didn't. he didn't talk about it at all. And it was actually, I was doing a Google search and found he'd done an interview with the Imperial War Museum, managed to get hold of a copy of it. And it's pretty amazing listening to his account 25 years after his death and what he talked about. I can absolutely see why he didn't really talk to us as a family and um, what the guys went through on the beaches, but also the, the, the civilians that actually took those little ships over. Um, anyway, I kind of like the idea of reserves, but for me, was it going to be sort of my worst fears realised? Would the TA be like a dad's army group of people? You know, true stabs as, as regulars have called them. Um, but interestingly, on all of your podcasts, it's only actually Steve's podcast where stab was mentioned. Would HAC be different? Who knows? Guys I previously met who were stabs were also salad dodgers, uh, you know, telling more stories. And <laughs> Yeah, sorry about using that expression. Um, and I was really worried it was just going to be full of corporals who, and this may sound horrible, have had a horrible day at work and they just want to shout at people in the evenings and weekends. But, you know, would HAC be different? So as for Steve's podcast, and I'll refer back to this a few times as I chat through, what amazed me was as I walked through the front, front gates, and for those who haven't been there, it's not a red brick military building in the outskirts of some nameless town, but what you can only describe as a mini castle in the middle of the city of London. Uh, not the tower, not really the Tower of London, but pretty impressive. And at the front gate was a pretty smart bloke in uniform and asked us if we were here for the really boring lecture and free beer. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm liking this and there's no shouting yet, so that worked for me. Went into the barracks, sat through a load of slides and what sounded actually like a really top-end military uh, unit and you know, three squadrons, each with STA roles, so the surveillance and target acquisition roles. But what really sort of caught my eye was uh, the quality of the PSIs the HAC had attached to them. And you know, it wasn't just sort of someone rotating on or off from some regiment. At the time, they were all pretty much Hereford lads and there was a biggest scariest bloke from the guards and later on you know the Hereford guys were replaced with the 473 contingent no one shouted everyone exuded just this amazing confidence what did worry me about that induction evening and I think Steve alluded to this as well there were more than just a few people who should have been called Rupert or more accurately Whooper um, <laughs> there were loads of people sort of introducing themselves Wellington 86 and eating this and Harrow and Marlborough and putting that aside I signed up to the assessment weekend and actually found it was my issue with the uh, the eating types, as I call them. Um, and I should mention toast racks and crumpets at that point. Uh, I think they just grew up quicker than, than I did. I was 24 at the time. A part of my narrow thinking, my narrow-minded thinking, was Lloyds of London, where I worked at the time. It was full of sort of really well-connected people in top jobs. Uh, one guy in my office, a director, he literally was something like the Duke of Marlborough's son, and he was only doing 
you know, working in Lloyd's, just get a bit of experience before taking over the family estate. Back to the assessment weekend, you know, like any assessment weekend, sort of it just give everybody an insight into what's going to happen. First morning, BFT, one of the Eaton guys pitched up in the shirt he wore for dinner the night before, boxer shorts, and the most amazing, shiniest pair of brogues you've ever seen on the planet. The DS were all over him, and he just basically said, well, I, I couldn't find my running kit, um, <laughs> so just wanted to run. Amazingly, he came in the top half. I'm still friends with Justin now. Um, I came away from that weekend. I was hooked. I'd had fun, and Ferg, not your sort of fun with you know party poppers and balloons and things, but um, <laughs> I actually felt I'd been tested uh, to a point. And yes, there was some shouting, but you know I was kind of hooked. Um, I then moved into recruits thirty-seven uh, around ninety-five. I don't know if you ever really been in the Cubs, so I had no real idea of military stuff. And this was before YouTube. This is before the internet, so you couldn't do any research at all. And as Steve said, it's a great course for introducing infantry tactics. Uh, to those who of us have never served before. And as with any course, you get great guys, Sam, Guy, Pete, uh, just to name a few, and some complete head cases. One guy who came from OTC had put his magazine pouch on upside down to make gravity help getting his magazines out. That's great when you only have one magazine, but when you have three and the other two fall on the floor. But yeah, there's some interesting characters. And I don't know, maybe I'm an idiot magnet, but I was buddied with a an absolute head case. And I'm going to put you through a test now, guys. What are the S's that give you away in the field? I think, I think Kev can go for the first one for this thing. Kev, Shine. go on. Shine. Shine. Shadow. Silhouette. Spacing. Yeah. Well done. That's for the memory test there, Chris. Thanks for that. No worries at all. No worries. Keep you on your toes. Um, the one, there, there, is, there is one more, and it was, it was my buddy, and I'm going to call him Slate. Uh, the guy was an absolute, absolute uh, character. Um, he would literally be lying in a shell scrape making noises like guns going off and rockets and things. And to sort of put that in, him into perspective, he uh, was cooking using his plastic messing mug that melted because uh, he looked across and one of the other guys had a metal one, but he did, hadn't made that connection. Fortunately, he actually ended up in gun troop, but I hear he nearly killed the whole uh, gun crew. And I apologise if I get the naming wrong here, but there's a plastic covering on the back of an artillery shell and he was whacking it on the side of the gun to try and remove it. I'm kind of thinking that's kind of... Uh, anti-human but i say chris i've never 22 years in artillery mate never was never was on the gun so i can't comment uh you were a cloud puncher <laughs> <laughs> i'm assuming that's some sort of uh, artillery insult is it yeah i was i was air defense i was air defense oh, okay which is like being in the raf what the great thing was is at the end of uh, recruits, uh, one of our recruits, Sam, now nicknamed Cockney, he got top recruit. For me, it proved the HAC has a lot of privilege, but that doesn't drive the sort of awards. Post recruits went straight into selection, um, and which is a whole different kettle of fish, and exactly as Steve Colley described on an earlier podcast. And you know, in particular, you know, the DS and PSIs were absolutely brilliant. Um, they were just encouraging and me now with a full six months military under my belt uh, was a real eye opener, particularly as there was a direct entry route for any ex regs. And, you know, we had guys coming into my selection who were ex paras who'd been in the Falklands, 14 int guys, PWRR, tanks, uh, all sorts. There was even a guy from the French Foreign Legion uh, called Ivan. You know, some really professional ex regular soldiers. But what I think what this was, was showing is that it showed the sort of caliber of the blokes that the HAC had started to attract. And, Maybe, uh, as Steve alluded to, it was HAC was moving away from the sort of old boys club mentality at that point. And again, thinking of DS, you know, having instructors running the course, whether Hereford or 473, who had a, an, an infinite attention to detail, I can't, I can't really describe. I wish I had it at work. 
these are guys who you know have been there, they've done it for real, and it absolutely helped. And you know that attention to detail wasn't just because they wanted it, it was because they had lived, they'd breathed it. And that actually made the difference, whether it be a level of comfort or in certain situations, imagine you even your survivability. What also got our attention on my selection was our PSI, Steve, who used to run around the ranges with a trip flare spike, dra- jabbing any part of your body that literally wasn't glued to the ground when we we're doing contract <laughs> drills. Definitely got your attention. And, and Steve had some some great sayings. You know, one of those is nothing is unachievable if you, uh, you know, prepare properly. And, you know, I'm a six foot three racing snake, as, as you both know. Uh, so Brecon wasn't too much of a problem because I've been there a dozen times with the guys. My only issue uh, is getting enough calories down my neck. The, the other expression that, that Steve had was that your mind gives up before your body. And I think that's something, you know, we will all recognize, you know, when we're out running or, or, or doing whatever. And I, I still find this true, even that thinking today. The other side was mental prep. And I read a book many times before Brecon, but we'll we'll get onto that later. FTX back then was uh, in East Nor in the Malvern Hills. And I absolutely loved every minute of it. For me, it was really realistic. It was over live public land. Uh, we had a live Blackwatch enemy, uh, incredibly professional. We had around 50 guys start uh, selection course 31 and around 21 actually passed, which is one of the highest I ever think. I think, you know, most of the ex-regs passed, uh, which actually obviously testament to the training they'd received prior to HAC. Only three of us didn't get caught. Uh, Cockney and I were, were two of them. We got compromised 50 yards from the second river crossing. Cockney got away, hid in a ditch and then uh, slept in someone's riverboat. Uh, I got on my toes being a racing snake and ended up in the back of someone's bungalow in a place called Eckington. And I remember trying to dial in the contact on one of those old phones on the wall with the dials that goes round and round. And every time I turned the dial, it dinged and a, and a dog barked. And I, that was time for me to go. You know, my contact report would have to wait. Um, <laughs> I won't say much about the last bit but I did manage to bag a portion of chips, dry my kit out and read the Birmingham Evening Post, <laughs> um, which is not something you'd normally do on selection camp. Frightening thing was, is actually the headline on the newspaper was it, the day before it had been the Dunblane Massacre. So that made running around you know, the English countryside in, in military kit with an SA-80 a little bit more risky. Um, final phase, R2I and TQ. Um, it's, it's really interesting what you go through. And I actually sewed a little button compass into my trousers and this wasn't found in any of the searches, um, of which there were many. I, I suppose in a real life situation, maybe I wouldn't actually be in my clothes, but it gave me a real lift every time they missed it. And as I was going through the mill, it makes me think of, of life. You know, we often beat ourselves up um, for that one thing that didn't work or didn't go to plan, as opposed to those little things that have gone to plan. And maybe we should take a little bit of time out in our life to remember those things and be thankful for it. Index of, of uh, selection. Uh, what shocked me uh, is that. After all this, I ended up with Selection's Nick London Trophy, and it uh, it was described as you know the DS Select who they believe put most into the course. And our Hereford CFR uh, PSI Steve sort of called it the Top Trooper Trophy. And given people standing around me, you know, ex powers all the ex regs, you know, Sam and one best recruit it was, a, it was a real honour. It also reminded me again that HAC is a regiment full of really connected people. And I read somewhere that something like seventeen percent of HAC are very high ranking officers. So assuming colonel above or whatever, but selection is about application and preparation. Things changed a little for me after selection. I changed company um, from one that absolutely supported reserves to one that wanted me to work last minute at weekends. Um, an example was, you know, I'd committed, trained to, to compete in Cambrian patrol, but they wanted to me work, to work the weekend and let the team down. I literally walked in the office with my notice. Fortunately, they didn't accept and I got to do Cambrian which was a, a double bonus because it was actually that same company where I met my future wife, Lisa. Following selection and then moving into the squadrons, 
uh, I went off to Belize for jungle training. And it was kind of the first time as reserves had been given the chance to do this sort of thing. It was a London-based regiment. There were guys from 2-1 and 10 Para and London Regiment. And it was a really interesting mix. And their thinking of HAC was was uh, was maybe not how we would want it. You know, maybe they thought our drills were slack. And whilst we were only in the jungle a couple of weeks, it was actually our Hereford PSIs um, who were running the whole exercise. They used our SOPs. And we were actually the, often the demo teams to show them how to how to do the drills. The other thing I loved about the HAC, uh, and this was, I think, mentioned on a number of your 473 podcasts, is we worked as adults and were trusted by the officers just to get on with it. And exactly that happened in Belize. One of the four tunnels broke down just as we drove in the jungle. We The safety net wouldn't be up for 24 hours and days before mobiles, etc. One of our guys, Trooper Tag, who was on my selection, literally jumped up, looked at the US vehicle, ran off to the jungle, and came back and it started. I've no idea what he did, but you know, I think it I really helped change how other regiments thought about AHAC, but also how professional we were. And actually we weren't all called Wooper. Following Belize, went off to Briançon. Um, so we had a main exercise in Briançon, live French Alpine forces, uh, the enemy, uh, the works. After that, I spent a few years uh, as a DS on selection uh, where Kevin and I first met. And it was actually whilst I was a DS on selection when I met Lisa, my future wife, in the summer of 99. At that point, I, I was then personally happy. I didn't actually want to be away every weekend. And I, I think that's a really good time to leave and leave when you're still enjoying it. You know, I always look back with a smile. I do have one regret, though, and that was not being able to put all the training into kind of a full deployment. For me, it's kind of like training for the Olympics and never actually going. Um, some of the guys when I was in, I did go out to Bosnia, but some of the stories coming back were more like boredom, more of boredom, as opposed to kind of the stuff that you know, had presented in previous podcasts. For a reserve, it's, 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 a diff, you know, it's a real balance between you know, your personal life, training for you know, HAC, for, for reserves, uh, your career. So there's sort of three or four different factors that you've got to take into account. And so for me, it was time to leave. I think there's a lot of soldiers that never go on operations you know, over the years. Unfortunately, in operations, and I think we have spoke about this, that uh, there's a lot of downtime. There is a lot of boredom in operations as well as um, moments of excitement. Yeah, Churchill's famous saying, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Soldiers, 90% boredom, 10% terror. So going on to the main sort of subject of the pod then, Chris, and we're going to cover mental health, sorry, mental health and issues surrounding it are all over the media these days for good and bad. And in our podcast, Northern Ireland, we discussed the Army's attitude to PTSD and mental health in the 80s, which left much to be desired, to say the least. And on this podcast, we're going to cover a short history of PTSD and speak to Chris about his experiences of a condition normally associated with military service. I've done a little bit of research on PTSD and and. What surprised me was it's existed as long as mankind has experienced trauma. This condition has been evidenced throughout history, though, uh, as a result of all types of trauma, from natural disasters to assault or soldiers in battle. And PTSD has been recognised as a human response to trauma, has been known by a number of explanations or terms throughout history. So mentions of combat stress have been found over 2,000 years ago in historical literature, ancient tales of Battle trauma and flashback-like dreams were documented. Later, PTSD flashbacks and nightmares were related to uh, from the battle experience found in the Hundred Years' War between England and France. And, but by the 1800s, mentions of PTSD in relation to combat and war zone participation were characterised as battle exhaustion or soldiers' fatigue. And, and when we talk about the First World War, it was shell shock. It was not ref- it was not looked on in the same way as it is today. And it's it's documented that traumatic experience could lead later to historical historical 
hysterical attacks that might happen years after the trauma. PTSD does not only occur in combat. Obviously, the emergency services have it, and many individuals have incidents or in life which will cause PTSD as well. And I think we'll talk about a little bit of that with Chris. Difficult liver conditions give way to trauma through their experiences, and PTSD symptoms became recognised in history under a host of, as I mentioned, different names. And one such one was a railway spine, which during the late 19th and 20th centuries described psychological responses to those who had witnessed or endured railway accidents. So all industries recognised PTSD, but it had its own terminology uh, to understand it. By the late 1800s and early 1900s, the talking cure began as a method to treat the symptoms. These early thematic interventions were the first step towards helping people who survived traumatic events. And World War One, as mentioned, a new awareness of, of the effects of war and the term shell shock was introduced to medical literature. And probably the first part of the, the military, medical and hierarchy starting to understand the accumulative effect of battle fatigue, as it was called before the term shell shock came in. And this, this condition described the, the same symptoms as PTSD and went on to become the predecessor of the official diagnosis. Unfortunately, some of the treatments for shell shock in those early days were drastic and unproven, including electric shock treatment, which, which never works for anyone with uh, mental health issues. Um, by the 50s, treatments became more humane, but many people were still not admit to any trauma symptoms due to the stigma. We've talked about stigma before and how even in the military, probably in the 80s and 90s, there was still a massive stigma around um, asking for help with mental illness or PTSD or stress, like Colin and, and Neil mentioned as well. It's probably in the later operations in Iraq and Afghanistan where it's been enduring a lot more effort time has been put into combat stress identifying those symptoms identifying ways to manage those symptoms as well because as we talked about before there is no cure for ptsd it's how to manage to live with it and to understand the symptoms and understand the impact it's going to have on your life and your family and i think when we joined up in the 80s kev i don't even think it was called ptsd nope. ptsd back then it was nope. still uh combat fatigue wasn't it i think yeah or- yeah it was still it was still yeah and it's very rudimentary what we could do about it it was trying to recognize it in individuals keep them together don't push them down back down the line keep them with the team try and talk it through a cup of tea all that basic stuff, but it was not recognising in the same way. But mental illness wasn't either in the eighties yeah. for us. It's like yeah, a cup of tea, warmth, rest, reassurance, and yeah. blues. That yeah. was the treatment, wouldn't it? And yeah. it was just starting to emerge from the Vietnam War ten years later. The true toll on the American servicemen from that. Well, if you look at the Falklands War, um, more veterans have died uh, from suicide than died in actual war. And now we're forty years on from the Falklands, and more and more veterans are coming out with PTSD because they've just lived with the symptoms for so long they didn't even realise, some of them, that they had it. And it's only now they're starting to recognise it. And only now can they get the appropriate sort of support and help. So, Chris, your experience of uh, PTSD is slightly different from what soldiers may expect. Can you just talk us through it, please? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so just in preparation for this podcast, I, I, I did a little bit of research myself, you know, looked at the NHS definition, for example, of PTSD, and it is an anxiety disorder caused by a very stressful, frightening or distressing event or events, um, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Someone with PTSD often relives the traumatic event through nightmares, flashbacks, 
and may experience feelings of isolation, irritability and guilt. It also made me sort of think this is for the geeks out there, which HAC had a few. Newton's third law. Um, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. I'm trying to remember my O-level in physics, but this normally relates to objects. But if you think of the mind as an object, you know, going through some of the things that guys have been through, there has to be an impact. And as it's in the mind, it's not visible, uh, but there has to be a reaction. And as Kev just mentioned there, you know, it may not be immediate. So sort of my, my story, so to speak, is you know, five years after leaving the HAC, Lisa and I got married. And nine months later, we had Josh. Uh, he was our firstborn. As with any dad, he's a sort of apple of my eye. And, you know, I could go shooting and fishing, all the great stuff. Uh, but that cha- everything changed sort of eight months later. And I, I remember every moment I was sitting in the lounge watching Spooks on the on the TV. It was uh, mid-November. Um, I remember Lisa's scream. And it's a scream that a husband and as a father, you never, ever want to hear from your wife um, or mother of your child. Um, I remember flying upstairs and seeing... Lisa holding Josh limp and blue. Uh, the next for me is a blur. Um, uh, me trying my best to resuscitate him upstairs and rem- desperately trying to remember sort of CPR I'd learned in the HAC, calling 999, me running down the drive with Josh in my arms in, in absolute total panic. Um, a reserve fireman stopped uh, to help and other reserve firemen actually stopped to help to try and give CPR to our eight-month-old son. Uh, the next bit... Um, the sort of flashbacks of just ambulances, police, hospital, sitting in a waiting room and kind of the news we knew was coming. Um, I don't remember how, how we got home, but, uh, you know, we were numb. And the police, the police firearms team actually standing on our drive with MP5s out back at my house. Um, it must have been three or four, whatever time in the morning, to secure my shotguns and, and rifles just in case. Uh, and a couple of friends uh, who own a gun shop, Alan and Di, they, they, they pop past to to pick up my guns. Um, after this, you know, there's months of, of questioning ourselves and self-challenge and what ifs. And, you know, what if we'd gone and checked him earlier? What did he have for dinner? Um, you know, what did we do? Did we take him swimming too much in the day? And But nothing would change that that event. And I think, Chris, you've you've... There's a commonality here between what soldiers go through and the experiences you've described. And in, in, in soldier terms, it's often disca- discussed as soldier's guilt, or su- sorry, survivor's guilt. Mm. Uh, and you can see that there. And um, I believe you listened to a Northern Ireland pod where Neil Hogg discussed his PTSD. How did you feel listening to that? Yeah, I, I, if I can come on to that one little thing in a second, uh, please, Ferg. The, the survivor's guilt is a really interesting one because my – seven-year-old nephew turned around to my my own dad um just after we lost josh and he just said you know grandpa why didn't you die first you know and that's i think it's the first time i ever saw my my dad cry uh but you know it shows you know how people think and i know my 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 own dad you know was felt very guilty about it it's not the order of things is it not in the first world not not in the first world yeah yeah. and that's a great point child mortality in uh, the third world is not unusual but Thankfully, here it's very, very uncommon. But did, did you find yourself being able to identify what Neil was describing his experiences as being like? Yeah, it's um, whilst um, what I've, I've, I have is is it not sort of getting shot at or blown up PTSD. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm using the wrong terms or seemingly I'm feeling, you know, like I've heard in previous podcasts, it's definitely something I've been advised that we have through this single event, uh, you know, sort of hearing Neil's stories on 
on you know, Northern Ireland and his PTSD uh, definitely brought home a few similar memories. Um, our family might not like hearing this bit, but in the days uh, immediately following losing Josh, you know, Lisa and I had a binary conversation and it was along the lines of, do we want to live or not? Yes or no? Um, we've been given some tablets, um, diazepam, I actually think, to help us sleep, um, just two tablets. Um, and for Lisa and I, it was, they were kind of like a, a bit of a trophy not having them. And we had them on the side in the kitchen and, not sure if trophy is the right word, but not needing them gave us a, a small victory, just like the sort of button compass I sort of snuck through R to I. We actually had a box of about 200 diazepam dropped off uh, wrongly by our doctors. And again, if we choose chose to, you know, that could actually have helped us permanently sleep. But yet the other thing to mention is, you know, afterwards, uh, we actually lost a number of friends. You know, one religious uh, friend his opening line on a call, he just went, he's in a better place. He's beside God now. Yeah, we. I put the phone down and we haven't spoken since. I, th- I think religion is quite weird in that respect. I think some religion for people who are religious is a comfort for those that aren't. It's just, you know, it's a, a bit, probably a bit bewildering to somebody to say that to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, other friends just sort of let us get on with it. And I know we acted and I, I definitely acted very differently, but that was going to be the new norm. And, you know, real thanks to those friends who sort of stuck by us. And whilst they might not have understood, they didn't really question us like the, the way we were. You know, certain events, certain triggers. I'd get up in the middle of a, of a dinner party at someone's house and just walk out. Um, I remember we were at a friend's house and there was a party and I switched off uh, a bouncy castle and a hot tub because it was making too much noise uh, in the evening and might put our, our daughter's uh, sleep at risk you know in my mind it was justified but what actually was truly important was Lisa and I didn't actually blame each other for what happened um, and on the funeral day it was um, the, the funeral cars had just turned up and I actually had a phone call from the coroner after losing a child in that way there, there is an autopsy just to make sure there's been sort of no foul play um, the results were caught death you know no explanation no reason just was and Lisa and I actually came out the back of, of that and we have a couple of expressions we use um, one is time doesn't heal. You know, we just learn to deal with things. Um, the second one, you know, don't expect or expect to be disappointed. And a re- an example of that was we lived in a tiny little village, uh, our local vicar. Um, and, you know, as you say, uh, for, you know, you've got vicars and religious guys that are there for lots of things, you know, births, deaths, christenings, weddings, all that sort of stuff. And we hadn't seen her for, for a couple of months afterwards. And we had friends of ours just come around and say, look, you've got to come out, just come out go to the pub, you don't have to drink, just have an orange juice or whatever. And we walked in there and, and our vicar was in there and she sort of came over and said, oh, I've, I've been meaning to come and see you. And you know, in, in my world, if you mean to do something, just do it. Don't wait for you know someone to invite or something like that, um, especially with her role as you know, a moral part of the village. And I said, so, oh, well, you know, did I need to chat away? And she said, oh, I, I absolutely understand what you're going through. This part of me wanted to say, you know, quite aggressively, you know, why have you lost an eight-month-old son to cot death? But I didn't say that. I sort of, you know, oh, have you, have you lost a child too then? Um, her next line was an interesting one because it was, no, I lost a cat last year. Wow. Um, That's mind-blowing. A, um, somebody who's probably had tr- training in pastoral care and, and bereavement is even going to say something like that. Yeah. Um, fortunately, our friend Di stepped in and had a word, and I think I think it, we moved on. Um yeah, uh, Lisa, just after it happened, continued to go to baby groups and she'd attended with Josh and I, I've no idea where she, she got that strength from. I went back to work uh, just over a month later and it was really hard walking in the office. Everyone with doe eyes and you know, I really felt trapped. I went into my office and 
people came in to say hi and some just stood there and, you know, to pay their respects. And um, what really did actually help uh, was a little bit of humour. Uh, there was a guy who worked down the other end of the office and didn't know I'd been away and or why I'd been away. Um, he just stuck his head in my office and just called me a slacker and asked for where I've been for the last month, which really broke the ice and made me think, right, front foot this, get out, say hello to people. And was that like a degree of normalcy in that somebody was treating you um, as the way you had been previously? Yeah, I think, you know, we've all got uh, ex-military types, either reserve or, or reg. I think we've got a different humour around around some things. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe classed as black humour sort of thing, but it definitely broke the ice and it was it, it was good. Next, you know, there was the question, you know, do we want to have children again? Um, absolutely, I can say the answer is yes. Uh, I've got two wonderful daughters, or at least I've got two wonderful daughters who are 14 and 12 but you know even even parts of of that has been horrific you know we we both Lisa and I hoped that we wouldn't have a son and might sound odd uh, but the stats for cop death are that more boys pass away each year than than girls and it's a, something like a thousandth of a percent but I think part of your PTSD journey is 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 that you know you become fixated on some of the most tiny things going you know uh, on the birth of our second child so Lucia I was sitting in the delivery room holding Lisa's hand. Lucia arrived but didn't cry. And, you know, she was rushed to the resuscitation table and absolutely everything from that night in November actually came flooding back. I uh, sat there absolutely helpless, um, sack of spuds. I could have said something else. but um, And, you know, what seemed like hours, it was mostly seconds, but then she cried and there was relief and things. And we got home a couple of days later and FSID, which is Cot Death Charity, had given us a, a breathing monitor, which we sort of had to stick to, Lucia's tummy every night um, to you know, sense her breathing, um, but this would sort of fire from the most the most crazy alarm if she didn't breathe just for a few seconds. But what it didn't take into account is babies do hold their breath naturally, but the alarm went off way too often. Um, but we're glad it did for obvious reasons. But then pretty much couldn't sleep because of a massive amount of adrenaline flying through our systems, you know, thinking of you know what could could be going wrong that hypervigilance must take its toll on you i mean being a parent's hard enough work anyway but if you're reacting to that monitor you, you must have been almost dead in your feet most of the time chris i'd imagine lisa, lisa and i sort of we look back at the first year of, of our eldest daughter's life and we can't really remember too much of it i think we were kind of just just surviving just getting through we wanted to get through that first year in particular the first eight months um yeah, hypervigilance, as you mentioned there, Ferg. And one thing I became completely fixated on was was temperature. Uh, in our bedroom, we had this temperature gauge, this big glowing thing. And, you know, 18 degrees is the target room bedroom temperature for a newborn. And I'd lay there, close my eyes, open them, look, and, you know, it was 18. I remember closing my eyes, counted to 10, 18.1. Okay, close my eyes, blah, 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 18.2. If it got to eighteen point three, I was up. I was opening windows and and wafting and everything like that, just to get the temperature back down. Um, I don't know where I thought the temperature temperature was actually going to go. You know, if I closed my eyes for an hour, was it going to go to a thousand degrees? In my mind, it was right, but in reality, it only gone up point three of a degree. You know, Sophia was our next, uh, and she was a little different. Uh, but she came out screaming and and stopped about a year later, so we didn't have those worries. <laughs> so, were you more relaxed then with Sophia? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think so, Kev. Um, though it's similar but different. We still had the monitor. Um, so, but I think we kind of got into that sort of routine with that. Um, I did spend the first six months of both of their lives going to bed pretty much fully clothed, you know, just in case. Uh, in, in my mind, that was right. I had shoes beside my bed and I was I was good to go. 
um, mobile phone charged, ready to, you know, it was almost speed dial 999. You know, I, I started saying prayers every single night, even though I'm not religious and I, I still really struggle when they're sick. You know, I'm so lucky to have Lise who, who, who dives in rolls and sleeves up and things. I just find it quite hard to function. One thing I do dread is the day they get hurt by a boyfriend. But uh, maybe my OP digging skills will come in useful, chaps. Maybe make sure the rifle and the shotgun are outside the house as well, Chris. Yeah, good, good shout, Ferg. So, at what point did you realise that you weren't right and needed help, and and how did you go about it? I suppose you know, being HAC, I never answer a question straight. I suppose I'd ask my first question is actually, what is help? Um, and I think we often think of help as sort of formal counselling, um, but I think help comes in many different forms. You know, mum and dad, after we lost Josh, came and lived with us, you know, to make sure we ate, make sure we drank uh, water and didn't sort of drink ourselves into a stupor or, or do something. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Worse, I look at the firearms team who, you know, while seemingly cold, standing there with their, we- with their weapons, absolutely helped. We had a Springer Spaniel, Millie, who uh, was an incredible dog. She just kind of understood. She came put her head on our laps when she knew we were struggling. You know, again, uh, I'm lucky to have Lisa, and you know, she understands what we've been through. Um, and a number of months, we actually did get some formal counselling. Uh, but my opening line to the counsellor was, counselling's for nutters, um, which... I know now to be totally wrong. Our counsellor sort of told us that, you know, when, when one of us was up, the other one would be down and because of our love and da-da-da, you know, we'd be able to support the other one. And, and that was fantastic. Um, what she did also say was that only one in 10 couples actually survived the loss of a child. Similar to that sort of uh, the, the, the tablets on the on the sideboard, on the, on the kitchen. I think we get some sort of strength, sounds odd, but get some sort of strength in that negativity. Chris, can I just, actually, sorry, just yeah. to jump in. Your attitude to counselling, you said, you know, you thought it was for nutters. Was that a product of being a male or a soldier or a combination of the both? I think I think a bit of both. Um, whilst I was only in the reserves for uh, sort of five, six years, that was actually part of my life, which I think was, was a massive influence on my life. Um, you know, I really kind of lived and breathed it. The other side is a male, you know, as a, as a male. And this isn't my, my parents at all. I was brought up in a very sort of that sort of family. You know, you don't, for the benefit of the tape, I sort of just point them all with my hand. Um, yeah, just... You, you you kind of just crack on, you know, and the males are the are the, the the providers, the protectors. I don't think that's unusual. I think Kevin and I could identify with that as well. Yeah, I think I, that's just I, the way you're conditioned as a male in this society, isn't I it? I think as most of us grew up, that was the way it was looked at. Of course, so uh, mental health, as we said, it was not an acceptable symptom, an illness. No. Uh, people shied away from it. People were ashamed of it in families as well. If a member of the family was um, seeking treatment for mental health, it wasn't talked about. Mm. If they broke a arm, a leg, or anything else, we talk about it all day long. 
But mental health is just something that wasn't, it's not public, it wasn't public. No, no. And, you know, bearing in mind, this was the other things around help is, this was 2006, so days before sort of Facebook and social media really kicked in. And obviously the Jungle Drums had worked and we received loads of calls and texts, but we didn't really answer them for the first few weeks. You know, absolutely numb. But I've got to say they absolutely helped. They mattered. Um, in the coming weeks, we had letters and cards coming through the post that we, we went to the letterbox every single day religiously to, to, to see who had communicated. Some people had just sent a card with a name at the bottom and, you know, they didn't really know what to say. Others, others put sort of war and peace down, but, you know, it didn't matter. Um, you know, we knew we were in people's thoughts you know, outside our immediate, you know, family. And I like to think of, of, of all of those things as, as little, tiny little threads that then led to, led to a sort of a bit of a stronger string that led to a rope that actually pulled us back to uh, some sort of reality. In preparing for this, I, had to, I, I was trying to put my mind into sort of what the military guys have gone through you know, in comparison. And I suppose, you know, whilst PTSD is, is, a, is the common thing, there is a difference. You know, my nearest and dearest Lisa, you know, understood to a point what I was going through, maybe even more. You know, she carried Josh for nine months. On the military side, you know, you've, you've got a partner, a husband, a wife, a daughter uh, who, who goes away for an extended period of time and comes back possibly carrying uh, emotional baggage. It can't be seen. It's under the surface and, and until there's an issue. Uh, and that may be, as you say, years down track. And those at home maybe don't understand. Maybe they find it difficult to understand. You know, we had a, we had a doctor come in a few days a week during that first month and give us advice and, and all those things, are, you know, absolutely are, are help. You know, she said, you know, think about the moment the funeral is over, every single person apart from the really close family will think it's over and, all oh, right, you know, back to normal. And, you know, as, as a complete aside, I, I will go off on a bit of tangent if that's all right. But you know, after leaving the HAC, I kind of realized how important these messages are from home. Um, I set a load of blueies and actually a Darth Vader cake to a, a mate, Matt, who was in Bosnia. <laughs> and yeah, and exactly, Ferg, you know, you, you're laughing. He actually said what a massive difference they make every day. After that, there was a couple of guys, Roy and Rick, who were out in Afghan and Iraq, respectively. And I sent over 100 care packages out to them, books and sweets and anything that guys had donated from the office. And some were for them and some of them kind of hand out just to the guys. Um, you know, someone had a Dear John or whatever. And, you know, they, they, they said a few books. You know, a book or a few sweets, you know, makes a difference. Also, a head of facilities uh, was next Welsh guardsman um, who'd been killed in the Falklands. Uh, he had the whole lot couriered out, so it didn't cost anything. By, by killed. Um, Larman, the guardsman, um, just got off the Sir Galahad and hit the beach, uh, I believe, when uh, the Sir Galahad was, uh, was hit. And he ended up being attached to a para battalion, a para battalion when he was uh, during the whole campaign. And at the end of the war, he was st- standing in Stanley and uh, reforming into his battalion in his rsm in sort of pure windsor davis ain't a half hot mum type fashion sort of opened up sort of you know cool arm sir um are you trying to make the guards look stupid he's like uh no sir we've told your wife you're dead now someone's got to phone her and tell her you're undead what you know yeah uh, you know again uh, i'm assuming you know they didn't know who had actually perished on the galahad and his wife had received a visit you know it must have been an incredibly difficult call to make to his wife and you know this is the days before mobile sort of been shipped ashore. He apparently stood in a queue at Port Stanley post office or something, phoned his wife. She put the phone down and believes they parted company when he returned. I mean, I, I think sometimes you, you don't understand the effect on the people you leave behind. And an example of my crass stupidity, when I went to Iraq in 2003, was it 2003, Granby? First Granby? Not Granby. Yeah, um, no. 
Tell it. Tell it one. Ever the practical soldier, I went upstairs, I got all the financial information together, I got my will together, I put it in a big buff envelope, and I went downstairs and I said to my wife, Is anything, if anything happens to me, everything you need's in here. And the look on her face was absolutely horrific. And I, I, I felt just, what was I thinking? I don't know if you remember this, Kev. When I went again a year later, I gave Kev the buff envelope and said, if it happened to me, can you can you make sure Vicky gets this? It's just, yeah. but it'd be, it's because your mindset when you're in the military, you just become, it's Practical. automatic. Yeah, yeah. You don't think about the, the, the bits and pieces. You just put it all together and think, well, that's that done now. You can't mentalise everything because you've done that. Crack on with the next bit. It's, it's on the, the to-do list, isn't it? It's not It's not an emotional thing. It's, it is that list of pre-deployment preparation. So so I've got another question for you guys, and I'm going to put you on the spot again. You know, I talked around blueies and things like that, and I mate Rick in Afghan, I, I, I sent him a book on deep-sea fishing and a Neen Valley video because obviously they're useful uh, in theatre. But blueies and parcels and stuff, they help, do they? Oh, absolutely, mate. I think I think you think of home. I remember on Granby, and we're sitting on the uh, line of departure, and I can't remember what time it was, but I remember thinking back home, people are down the pub now. You know, we're sat there in NBC Three Romeo, and the guns are going off, putting in the artillery fire, and all the rest of it. And the same applies to a bluey. You know, you can get a bluey. You think of people back home, and for time you're reading that bluey, you're not in that space you're in on ops. It takes you away, and those small acts of kindness that you're getting, I, I think they make a difference. Do you agree, Kev? Yeah, I think a lot of our operations, obviously, it was pre-social media and all the rest of it, so you couldn't make phone calls all the time. And then the later operations, there was still a restriction on communicate means of communication, no telephones, all that sort of stuff. So you're still relying on the called e blueies now because obviously you write it and it's printed out in, in country and given to you. But you're still relying on those little moments that they can bring you. They can give you a little bit of escapism from from the realities of where you are and what's been going on that day. It gives you something to look forward to as well. Um, and of course, you get the printed letter where it's great if you're dishing the mail out. There's a classic <laughs> line where you, you get you know, you know, mail calls a thing, and you, a lot of yeah. time in ops, you won't get any for weeks on end. Then you get a big, massive sack of it. And what normally happens is somebody comes and dishes it out, and they go, Right, Smith, there you go. There's always a classic you go, yeah. Jones, give that to Robertson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think the parcel bit as well, because there was a lot of um, anonymous parcels were sent out to Iraq and Afghanistan as well for serving soldiers, there was a, a, a big campaign about it. And so loads and loads of stuff was sent out. And I think it helps because you feel like you're not being forgotten because you are thousands of miles away. Your reality, uh, your view on the world's changed because you, you, you're you not interacting with the, the UK and what's going on there. You're, you're in your own little world and your own little operation. I think it's, I think it's, it's vital. Yeah, so I the agree. Darth Vader cake's a winner, yeah? Absolutely, mate. So, you now help others suffering from PTSD, Chris, with a paddleboarding initiative. Can you just tell us a little bit of that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, after after a number of months and, and things, you know, Lisa uh, found yoga uh, during this time, and you know, massive lifesaver for her that was. And you know, thanks to Julie, I need to give a shout out. Um, you know, wonderful thing yoga is, and yeah, you know, Lisa's now a teacher in her own right, so she's you know, helping people. Um, I found surfing. Uh, so surfing for me is a way to exercise, um, but also there's something about being in the ocean. It's like you know, it's like green space, so trees and fields and that sort of stuff. Um, but being in a natural body of water, there's there's something connected, more connected with nature. Um, I don't know if it's because we're eighty percent water, or 
um, you know, as cavemen, we stayed near water and a source of food, transport, and also, I suppose, water. And even today, uh, you know, being on the waves, uh, I can't explain. Uh, but what I do know is, you know, the dad and the husband, my family get back after I've been in the surf, in the water, is not the one who left. And it, it's important to find an outlet. As my counsellor told me, you know, one of the things I do remember from our conversation, she said, you're not good at talking. Okay, fair shout. Um, and I'm a pressure cooker waiting to explode. And that's maybe one thing we can all recognise. So roll forward five years uh, from the night we lost Josh. And I'd started volunteering my spare time with a mental health surfing charity uh, for children in Cornwall, um, amazing charity called The Wave Project. Uh, and they give surf lessons to children and young adults who have been through life's ringer. Um, and what amazed me from, from that was the difference it made not only to the children, but also the families. And I think, um, you know, help and care and that sort of thing. And counselling often focuses just on the person and not their support network um, who may need, you know, additional training they may need support or something you know, maybe your maybe your wife ferg needed a, needed some counseling after you gave her the buff envelope <laughs> i probably needed a slap chris <laughs> <laughs> um and I, so so i thought doing something here in uh, to the wave project in essex but as we know essex isn't uh, big on waves i also wanted to do something for the sort of three emergency services who who stopped on that night and you know, tried to bring Josh back to us. And I know, you know, that night absolutely took its toll on more than just Lisa and myself and family. I found out subsequently two of the blue light team, it was their very first night on duty. Um, and wow, what a baptism of fire that, that must've been. I've, I've, I've got a few mates in the blue light services um, who must see and live some of these events forever. Back in 2019, uh, I got a, a nod from OC home, Lisa, uh, to basically start a mini charity. Uh, that I call service support, and it it looks to give paddleboard lessons uh, to emergency services and armed forces. I took a paddleboarders course, purchased a load of boards, and got everything else squared away. And then in in 2019, I put 150 people through the course, uh, including London Fire Brigade, Essex Police, East and East of England Ambulance, uh, uh, with links to a couple of military units. Uh, also, their friends and family, and it was really important to to rejoin them. I think most of them enjoyed it. I think some. Uh, people surprised themselves as there were quite a few who actually weren't water confident some even actually got emotional um, one of the best sessions i had was london fire brigade guys uh, at a lake i partner with in cambridge called milton park firstly catch up with sam from uh recruits and selection hac uh, and cockney had become a fireman but secondly you know one of the guys on his watch said that they never really got to socialize together apart from in the pub and when they were in the pub they kind of just chatted around the job they never actually got time out to have fun um also you know if they were to buy this through a normal paddleboard company uh, for six people it would cost over 300 pound uh, and people can't often justify that sort of spend their sessions and everyone i give are for free even even that's been a bit of a journey for me you know it's it's been a fantastic journey i you know, won't, won't take that back um i had to do a first aid qualification an rya so royal yacht association first aid course and pretty much struggled with a cpr as you might imagine but you know, a month, month later, I, I sort of passed that course. A month later, I was cycling through my local park one winter's morning with my oldest Lucia and we were on our way to hockey. And we turned the corner of the park and sitting there on the floor was a woman who was just screaming uh, with a man standing over the top of her. I hadn't seen in the woman's arms was a lifeless blue child. Uh, but as a dad, you know, you, you go into protection mode. So I'm Lucia, come this side. And so she, the, the sort of safe side of me, I then sort of noticed you know, all three parties in, in the equation. Yeah, every, every emotion came back to me from November 06. Uh, but this time I was an observer. You know, I didn't want to be involved. I wanted to run, uh, well, cycle anyway, I was on my bike. And then Lucia, eldest daughter, said in a very loud voice, Daddy, you're a first aider, you can help. 
So, you know, we'd always taught our daughters to try your hardest in every in every situation. Don't worry about the outcome. Just try your best. Um, and she'd basically call me, call me out and I can feel myself sweating at this next bit. But, you know, I remember every every sinew, every muscle in my body was was run. It was it was fight. Uh, wrong. It was flight, not fight. And I'm not sure I thought of this at the time, but I don't think I'd have forgiven myself afterwards if I'd have if I'd have got on my toes yeah. and people stopped to help Lisa and I. Um, so just remember giving Lucia my bike, walking over and just you know asking if I could help. And I was a first aider, and this mum just lifted this this child into my arms. I'm like, here we go again. Um, the next part, next part's kind of a blur, but I remember shouting for help. Another first aider turned up and kind of, it's, it's odd, but training actually kicked in. Um, I lost the emotions. The emotions kind of stopped. We went through the primary survey, as you taught, or Dr. ABC. And what happened is this two-year-old, this toddler had been walking along with her hands in her pockets and had fallen and smashed her head and her face and stopped breathing. We restored her airway and a couple of little shakes. And fortunately, we didn't need to go for the CPR because I'm not sure where I'd be with that. Then just coordinated with the ambos. And thanks to... Uh, an Ambo mate, he's a senior ambulance bloke, Mr. Tim. He got us one PDQ because I was not, I was not the calmest person in the world. What, who was calm was the the, the nine 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 lady on the phone. I, I was looking at the parents and they stood there absolutely frozen by fear, as I imagine we were. What was beautiful is we actually handed over a rosy, bloody faced girl to the Ambo crew. We then went back to hockey, which was fantastic. And and later on that night, my mate Ambo mate Tim came round and. Yeah, it was it was really emotional actually. I've got to ask a question, Chris. Go for it. Sorry, I'm rambling. Uh, no, no, you're not rambling at all. Was I don't know if it's the correct term to use, but was that therapeutic or the, the fact that you'd help save this child's life? Yeah, wow. Well, uh, up to that point, I was one for nil. If it sounds callous, but I, mm. you know, yes, and yeah, I think so. I, I kind of. I needed to do, you know, you, you you can't just stop in these situations. You've got to get involved. You know, if you think you can help, you've got to get involved. Um, that was, you know, that's what we teach our daughters to try your hardest, you know, and, and talking to Tim afterwards, you know, this is things, you know, my, my ambulance friend, Tim, you know, this is something blue light teams deal with every single day, mm. you know, and it is, mm-hmm. it's an aggregate. You know, it's not just the once in in my yeah. life I've done this or twice, it is every single day. Accumulative, um, which, which we talked about before. Absolutely, that Kev. Um, but for me, it kind of reaffirmed me to me that the, the, what I what I, I was doing with the charity was the right thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, chatting to I, I needed to talk to Lucia later on and sort of you know to see if she was all right. And she said, "Daddy, I'm proud of you." And you just sort of, "Wow, that's uh, you know." Normally, it's parents to children saying, "Oh, well done for your homework." Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, she said it was the right thing to stop. And yeah, you know, definitely an old head on young shoulders. And she gets that from her mum. She then asked me a question, and she said, uh, "Daddy is." Um, See you next Tuesday. A naughty word, <laughs> and and he kind of it, it caught me on the on the on the hop somewhat. I kind of then remembered uh, what was going on and where she'd heard me maybe use that word I shouldn't do in front of my daughter when we were with this girl trying to get her to breathe. There was a guy standing there videoing on his phone. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, as is as is public life these days. Um, and I think I verbally encouraged him to go and stand in the road. Um, <laughs> not to, no, 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 not not to play with the cars, but to actually flag down the uh, an ambulance because this park has about five different entrances, and just to get him get him to be part of the solution, um, time was critical in my mind. Um, especially as the nine 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 lady said, "Look, what's happened? She's likely to fit again, and you will have to give CPR. And are you good to give CPR?" And mm. I wanted to go. No, I wanted to tell her about Josh. I wanted to run. I wanted to you know, a flight, not fight. And I kind of looked at the parents and they were sitting on the floor with their daughter in their arms. 
for comfort. And mm. I just said, of course, you know, fortunately, you know, seconds went by. It might have felt like hours, but I heard the sirens and, and off we went back to, to uh, hockey. But back to paddleboarding. Sorry, I, 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 I digress. But No, that was a, a really, I know that was difficult again, Chris, but that's, you know, a really interesting aspect of what you what you went through yeah thanks Ferg. um and you know this has really been an odd odd journey for me you know it's not the easiest thing to sell as a service it's free you know uh, i've had to call a number of mates to get things moving and you know what's frustrating is a number of friends have put me in touch with so-called welfare teams from the emergency services and and those teams are tasked with the mental health or mental wealth of their their employees and some of them i pretty much didn't get a response from um, or complete lack of response, enthusiasm for for a piloting. Saying that, I did go through one emergency service and managed to give uh, a senior officer from one of these services a, f- a free lesson with his daughter. Um, and what was amazing, and actually, when he thought about work, he fell in. And afterwards, <laughs> yeah, and he, he said, "This is amazing. Every time I think about work, I'm falling in. But when I'm concentrating and relaxing and enjoying, I, I'm not thinking about work. I'm not falling in." He then actually told his sports and social team uh, to get involved and then covid happened the next day uh, which isn't which isn't great um the, the other the other odd thing i'd actually approached a number of sort of blue light and military charities and you know offer their members free sessions and they were pretty much along the lines of well how much money are you going to give us that was their kind of pure yeah very little mm. engagement on there yeah. why do you think that is that this you're offering them free services, but they're expecting to get money off you. It's bizarre sort of stance that, isn't it? I suppose it's just, you know, their, their MO. It's just, you know, you go on any, any charity website, it's donate. It's not partner. It's not, or, you know, yeah. do they see me as a competition? I, I have no idea, but. But you are donating, you're donating time. free lessons and time. Free lessons. Yeah, absolutely that. Yeah. So I don't, I don't. And also, you, you've had your, the life experience you've just described. You, you understand where people are coming from. Yeah, yeah, everyone's different, but yeah, we have similar similar sort of experiences and things. So, so, so yeah, COVID twenty twenty happened and pretty much put a stop to anything. But again, possibly looking to do something in twenty twenty two, and with this podcast may help and things. And you know, I'm based in Essex, uh, quite close to the A twelve. So you know, if anyone fancies a chat, then I'm sure that you know we can put links and things in. Absolutely, mate. If you give us all the links that you want for the show notes, we'll put them on there and. We'll get them out on our Instagram account and other social media as well, Chris. Okay, legend. Thank you. Having been through what you're all you've been through, Chris, what's your advice to MD who's suffering with PTSD, whether it's military related or non-military related PTSD? What would you say to them? Um, give yourself time. Don't be hard on yourself. Um, here's an example. Uh, there was a guy who he's is uh, a friend, and he had a breakdown from work. And, you know, whether it's PTSD or, or stress, but some, you know, mental uh, injury, his life, work-life balance wasn't, wasn't balanced. And I remember going around to see him, you know, he, I was, I was doing what the, you know, the police were doing. I wanted to secure his shotguns and chatting away with him. It's definitely the right thing to do. And, to, you know, he, he accepted my help to a point, but sort of got really upset with himself. So we need to be careful when we're offering help to people because he sort of he was look you know my son's alive and yours the one that's that, that died and I should be the one supporting you and he was really beating himself up with it so mm. we need to you know if we are helping be very very careful with that we managed to sort of flip it around by saying look I'm I'm getting very stressed by the fact that you have shotguns and something could go wrong and I need you to help me and and that sort of thing so you know and I've talked to him afterwards and he he said it was quite hard to accept help and we've used expressions like man up and things but I'd say you know give yourself time accept help uh, be careful when you accept help because there's i would say maybe some glory hunters out there who are your social media types mm-hmm. so you know and, and and that i'm sure could have a negative effect on on people um mm-hmm. so 
but your nearest and dearest, they, they, they should be your place to go. Chris, thanks for that. I can't even imagine what you went through, so I'm not even going to try and put it into words. Uh, and I, we really appreciate you coming on and your frankness, so, so thank you for that. So as usual, we're going to finish off with Desert Island Ditch, which is Chris's choice of book, film and Luxtratum. So Chris, what have you picked? Okay, so I mentioned earlier on a book I read in Selection. This isn't my choice, but I just wanted to mention it. Uh, and It was The Quiet Soldier by Adam Ballinger. But uh, given the topic of this is PTSD, there's uh, an ex-reserve HAC lad who wrote a book called Among You. It's called Jake Wood. And it talks about his life in, in the bank, in the city, his tours of Iraq and Afghan and his return, and also his PTSD. Um, and I get back then, uh, you know, TA soldiers or, re- or reserve soldiers were sort of attached attached to regular units, deployed. And then sort of on the Monday morning of their return, they sort of went back to the office without what I suppose, uh, Kev, you'd call decompression now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and, and that's the support, but not just the decompression support, but also the decompression time that, that other regulars would receive. Um, I understand for reserves that's very different now, but I think he kind of just rocked up for work on a Monday morning. And the very first thing anybody said to him was, did you kill anyone? Which, you know, uh, and he, he brings it out very well uh, in his book. And, you know, Jake and I have met a couple of times and some of the traits, uh, the PTSD traits Jake described across, uh, do, do span across military and civilian. Um, mm. So I could kind of understand some of the things. I think that's two things that come out of what you've just described there, Chris. The first is that even in the early days of Iraq and Afghanistan, PTSD still wasn't being managed properly or, you know, the prevention of PTSD wasn't still being managed properly. And then you've got that disconnect between the civilian world and the military world. I think civilians, the armies are a very small part of society now and they just don't understand it. And and they've got sometimes a morbid curiosity about what a soldier gets up to in operations. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Film choice have you gone for? I'm a 70s child. My teens was in the 80s, so things like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket were definitely up there. Uh, More recently, Danger Close, I really enjoyed, and, and 1971. That had me on the edge of my seat. My first thinking, as uh, this is a military podcast, was a war film, uh, but it would be one of hope as and what individuals can do. As a, and that, so I was thinking Schindler's List. Um, I'm sure most people have seen it, but for those who haven't, you know, Schindler's List about a German industrialist who, who's who's credited for saving sort of 1,200 Jews from the Polish um, Holocaust. Um, and there's an amazing quote in the film uh, that's taken from Hebrew script, I think. And it's, it says something like, you know, whoever saves one life saves the world. But again, given this the theme of this podcast, um, my film choice is a short film on Netflix. It's half an hour, so just about keeps my attention. And it, it's called Resurface, uh, and it's definitely the inspiration behind my paddleboarding. It's a, a docu-film uh, about a charity set up for giving surfing lessons to ex-military people. Um, and the stories uh, of the people you know, truly show the sort of benefits of water-based sports as a sort of form of therapy. You know, a couple of the guys in the film, uh, they've gone through uh, CBT and they're on the most amazing beach in the US, but they have, they're standing there reminding themselves they're not being shot at, they're not being blown up. Um, you know, there's one guy on there who said he basically had a bucket list of things he wanted to complete and then he was going to go home and stick a forty-five in his in his mouth. He then surfed uh, and then wondered what the waves were doing tomorrow. And there's a great quote from the film, and this guy says, you know, if I'm thinking about tomorrow's waves, I'm not thinking about killing myself today. And, you know, that was it, it, that for me really hit home. And I surfed with a, a doctor of psychotherapy in, in Cornwall. They're not all sort of just layabouty types. Um, <laughs> and it, you know, he, he said that activities like surfing rejoin the mind and the body. There's adrenaline. I think, you know, we mentioned earlier, you know, pass by, but, you know, you've got adrenaline, you've got you know uh, all the endorphins you get through exercise. 
uh, oxytocin, the sort of happy drugs and things like that that your body naturally produces. Now, he said to me that you know, activities like surfing, as I say, rejoin the mind and body. They've both been through the trauma. And often, often you know, historically, counselling just looks at the mind itself. And actually, that in itself can even cause an imbalance. Mm. Um, so uh, check it out. Uh, Ferg, you had a quick skim at uh, Yeah, when, when we were preparing for the pod, mate, you mentioned this to me. And I thought, oh, I'll have a look at that. And I found it fascinating. I mean, somebody's got, because it's an American film, but there's a British veteran on it as well. And he's one of the most severely disabled. He's lost um, both legs, a full arm, and he's just got a stump on his right arm, I think it is. I, th- I found it fascinating that this was also what you've just described was mentioned by a doctor on that too. And he said very much the same thing, that the PTSD is now being seen, as you've described, as a, as a chemical imbalance, you know, and, and, and how surfing, and you just said, the endorphins sort of reconnect and, and get that balance back. So, yeah, I, was, I highly recommend it if anyone's got to see it. So, Moving on to your luxury item, mate. I mean, you're going to Desert Island. There's got to be a surfboard in there, isn't there? Uh, it, it, it made the short list. It definitely made the short li- list. Uh, for, and again, you know, listening to all the other podcasts, maybe a 319, loved Kev's radio idea from one podcast, uh, but it'd have to be a wind-up one, not battery one. The winder wouldn't be one of those hand-crank rubbish things that I've spent hours trying to get a charge into a battery. Um, possibly a hammock from Belize with an integral model uh, mozzie net. Definitely possibly a paddleboard. Um, or a surfboard. HAC, I'm sure someone would like a credit card, but I'm not sure <laughs> how useful that would be on a desert island. Could be limiting that. Could it, could limiting. Be. it could could very well be, Kev. But my luxury item, again, I might think differently than the rest of the world. Um, if I was pushed, I'd actually take a picture of my family. So completely impractical, but of an awesome holiday we had in Sri Lanka. When I, when I was thinking about this, you know, they are the reason I get up every day. You know, So that's that would be my luxury item. And that's a good one, mate. And that actually ties in very quite a bit with what we discussed discussing the other bit getting blueies and reminders from home that, that that connection so it's important kev what's your choice this week on the book front it's it's following on from uh the previous episode when we talked about serpico into a book called the super cops the true story of cops called batman and robin by lh whittlemore and this is a a book a, and then quickly afterwards, a film. And it was it was around the same sort of time as Serpico. Again, another true story of two police officers in New York. It's a little dated now. The film, great story. Uh, a true story of two New York cops, Dave Greenberg and Bob Hans, whose arrests were so spectacular, they were nicknamed Batman and Robin by the local community and by some of the criminals. They quickly came from the academy, made their mark, and the story covers their story as they conducted a number of arrests and police work while they were not on duty. Uh, whilst they were on duty, they were just frustrated by the, the, the tasks they were given. Uh, they were also frustrated with the system, other offices, and during their time, they were both investigated for um, uh, alleged corruption. Uh, some very serious scenes and some and some violence, but the book is overall very enjoyable. As I say, got known as Batman and Robin. If you go on YouTube, you can actually see a clip of them, a uh, real pair, and one of them was wearing a, a, a Batman T-shirt as well. Strange, strange. Um, I've got retro. images of that only fools and horses episode. <laughs> that of was, Christmas. I was, I was trying not to say anything. Folks. It's far better, <laughs> far better. Um, but interesting. In twelve, in two thousand twelve, um, uh, one of the former NAP Commission councillors, Michael Armstrong, disclosed that Greenberg and Hans were investigated by Brooklyn's district attorney's office for the murder of two drug dealers because they got involved in a shooting with um, some work they were doing. They got to a bit of a, a shootout with some drug dealers and killed them. Uh, the account that obviously they gave was it was in self-defence. 
it later come out that there might have been something a bit more um, not so much start self-defense. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> no one knows the real truth at the moment, but Armstrong says that Greenberg and Hans' account was contrary to the evidence. He dis- And he also disputed other parts of the book, claiming that the two repeatedly shook down and robbed and assaulted um, suspects. So some of the arrests might have been a bit more, they didn't pay, so we took them in, but no one knows. Greenberg retired from New York Police Department in 1975, was elected as an assemblyman. In 1978, he was then arrested on mail fraud and obstruction of justice. And so how, served- many, how, many, how many people did they previously arrest were let out of jail after oh, the list came out? Well, uh, I don't think any of them. Because <laughs> this, this came out in 2012, so by the time all this sort of story come out, and these were obviously police officers in the late 60s, early 70s. A lot of the people who had gone to jail during the time have come out and gone, <laughs> bloody hell. I mean, majority of people, they, if they allegedly shook them down, were criminals anyway. But anyway, Greenberg, he spent nine months in jail, and then he was arrested again for insurance fraud. And Hans was arrested for possessing marijuana in 1975 while on vacation in, in Bahamas. And when he got back, he got demoted and then he resigned from the police service as well. So a couple of characters. From the Popeye Doyle School of Policing. I I think, well, I think for all the good they did, they probably did it in a way that the 70s (laughs) police were doing stuff in New York, a bit more imaginative and um, probably no worse, no better than the rest of the, or a lot of the uh, New York police service at the time. But great book, great entertainment. Ignore the 2012 bit and just crack on. Yeah, crack on. (laughs) Thanks, mate. Well, my choice this week is Legionnaire by Simon Murray. And uh, like a lot of books I recommend the podcast, this was first given to me by my dad. And I must have been about 13 or 14 when I read it. And it was the first time really I'd uh, got to know anything about the Foreign Legion. Uh, Murray was from a well-off family and he joined the Foreign Legion in 1960, age 20, and he signed on for the standard five-year engagement. And after he passed his basic training, he joined 2nd Rep Regiment Etranger Parachutiste. Is that French okay, Kev? I don't speak French, mate. Oh, come on. I just about to speak English. I thought you would. It's a language of love after all. So and he and he went to second rep in Corsica, and he describes basic training for Legion and and the second rep really really well. He's good on detail of his fellow recruits and the methods used, which as you would expect for Foreign Legion in the sixties were quite brutal. Uh, and interestingly, early on in the book, he gets pulled up by a French corporal in the Legion who says to him basically that the Brits make the best or the worst Legionnaires, and they were always going AWOL. Uh, Murray didn't know he did his full five years. He then went on and served in operations in Algeria in the War of Independence there, fighting against the FLN, and there's a really great section in the book devoted to this. And that war lasted from 54 to 62 and led to Algeria winning its independence from France. But it was a complex conflict characterised by guerrilla warfare and the use of torture. There's a good film tie-in. You get two for one in the podcast. Uh, if you get a spare moment, try and look up the Battle of Algiers, which was filmed in 65, and it's very much filmed... It's a propaganda piece in essence because it's filmed in Algeria from an Algerian perspective and it highlights the sort of abuses and uh, the way the French military treated the Algerians during that period. Post-Legion, Murray went into the corporate world and became a multi-millionaire businessman running major companies in the Far East and always an adventure. He trekked at 1,200 kilometres to the South Pole in 2004, a journey that took two months, climbing up to 2,835 metres above mean sea level. And by doing that, he became the oldest man to reach the South Pole unsupported. So a real character, and his book's fantastic. Thank you, Chris, for coming on and sharing that very personal experience with us. Um, yeah, I've 
for Kev, you know, you know, huge thanks for letting me come on and chat. You guys know that this has released you know, the pressure cooker, so to speak. And maybe one thing for our listeners, uh, if, if each of us could possibly give at some point a tiny little bit of time, you know, this can really help. And I'm not saying do something stupid like set up a charity or something daft like that. Just send a text message to, to a mate who you maybe haven't heard from in a while or you know who you've heard has fallen on hard times or going through life's struggles. You know, a, a, a simple text or Maybe like the guy in the office, call me a slacker. Personal experience, absolutely. I know. Yeah, these are lifelines. Thanks, Chris. And and you say it's, you've constantly alluded to this pod. It's the little things that make the difference. Yeah. So thank you for that. And thanks again to all our listeners uh, to the podcast and for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming in. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes as normal. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. If you've downloaded us from your favoured platform, give us a review, please. That's really helpful in bringing other people onto the pod. And finally, thanks again to Nick Beal for his continued support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical support for his company, ISA. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. 